Let us ask the Lord to bless his word today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your word. May we humbly submit to it. May you use it not only to cut out our sin, but to heal us and make us whole. May we all be edified by the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Ken's already brought up Greg Strawbridge and the funeral that we attended. And we had an opportunity to hear a number of people speak about Greg. And I know there are people in the congregation that don't know who Greg Strawbridge is. So just quickly, I'll tell you um, that he was uh, an instrumental leader in our denomination. Uh, he did an awful lot of training of ministers. As a matter of fact, all of his pallbearers were either current or former ministerial students of his and even one of the four people that gave uh, eulogies and talked about Greg and the legacy that the Lord provided for him uh, was one of his former ministerial students but of all of them and there were so many great things said his best friend got up and shared a few thoughts and I thought that it was uh, a wise thing for us to consider. He talked about how he met him in college and basically Greg was walking down the hallway and this brings up the guitar situation. Greg passes this guy's dorm room and he sees a guitar hanging on the wall there and Greg sticks his head in and says, oh, you play guitar? And that is how Greg's ministry life began by doing things with this fellow student. And his best friend was just a little older. He had already been at the university for a while, and he kept leading Greg along. And he would put him in places and say, let's do this, let's do that. And he referred to this acronym. He said that Greg was fat. Not that he was uh, overly obese, although in his older years, he had a little bit of extra chunk but he was fat he was faithful available and teachable and as i think about that as it relates to all of us each one of us each week with each other with the faithful people of god we need to be faithful to god and one another available that is in each other's lives and teachable be willing to hear god's truth be able to hear correction be able to be admonished into doing what God has us to do. So I would like us to consider that as we go through not just this passage, but also each day of our lives. So we're going to be talking about and reading through and dis discussing our lectionary reading today from the Gospel, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And of course, if you've been with me any time at all, you know I like to give a little bit of an overview and leading up to where we are. And I think it's important that we recognize, first of all, who was writing the gospel. It's, it's Luke. He was a physician. He was well-educated. Uh, you can see this even in um, the formal Greek that he uses. In some cases, it is so precise that it reminds us of the scribes who uh, wrote the Septuagint out. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And we see that Luke is 
very careful on the details, and then also is very concerned with getting the message of what Jesus was here to do. Prominently throughout the book of Luke, we see that it is describing Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem and all of that heading towards the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We see throughout the whole thread of Luke God's sovereign hand in Jesus' ministry. As a matter of fact, in last week's reading, you remember, after they rejected Jesus, they, they were pushing him up to the top of this hilltop, and what were they going to do? They were going to throw him off. He gets all the way to the top, and then he just turns, looks at the crowd, and with the authority and sovereign hand of God, walks straight through that riotous crowd that had murderous intentions for him and went on his way. Jesus' ministry and death was all God's plan. And Jesus, the whole time, even though he goes to Jerusalem each year for the required feasts, he's always heading and turning his head towards God's will and God's purpose of getting to Jerusalem so that he may lay down his life for the forgiveness of all our sins. It's his clear understanding that he will die for sinners at Jerusalem. I feel like myself, and maybe this is applicable to you, I'm much more like Jonah, where it's harder to just set my, my face straight to the hard things, straight to the things that God is calling me to do. And yet Jesus never wavered. Sometimes we think that he was wavering when he was praying in the garden, but he was not. I see that prayer as an acknowledgement of God's sovereign hand and that he's going to submit to God the Father's direction to die for the sins of the world. So we need to be thinking about that every week as we hear the gospel readings for, for some time. We're going to be working through Luke in our gospel readings. As you think about this, remember all of these narratives and stories that we're hearing are all pointing us to the fact that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to lay down his life, his perfect life, his sinless life for our sins. We see in the preceding chapters, in the first part of Luke, we see uh, the, the, the story of John the Baptist. That all develops up. We see following that, that Jesus meets needs. He goes around and he's teaching throughout Galilee and other areas of Israel. But he doesn't just preach God's word. He meets needs. He heals people. He provides for them. And you see last week, remember, it mentioned the fact that as was his custom, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus teaches in the synagogues. It's important to note that in this passage, just prior to this, Jesus is preaching in the synagogue and actually casts a demon out of the synagogue. There was a man possessed by a demon in the synagogue. And Jesus casts him out. That's our first 
opportunity in the book of Luke to see this fact that demons were occupying the teaching places of God throughout Israel. People of God, we need to protect ourselves and guard our thinking from the poisonous lies of the devil that can seep in. That's why we read those lectionary passages. You might say, man, there's a lot of Bible going on in here. Well, it could be longer. I might even argue for that at some point. But, but the truth of the matter is, we need God's Word to reset, reform us. Why do we come here every week? It's so that we can be reoriented towards God. And we see that Jesus continues to head to the synagogues. And by the way, you see Paul later on as he does his missionary journeys. Where does he go? He goes to the synagogues. And again, dealing with the lies that have crept in there. Following casting out that demon, it says that Jesus went to Simon Peter's house. And when he got there, he found Peter's mother-in-law sick with a fever. And he raised her up and healed her. So Jesus not only heals the body, but he heals the spirit. And he's preaching in the synagogues and teaching there so that the people of God may hear the truth. And so that brings us to where we are today, and we see in Luke chapter 5, I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to break it down today. So again, this is the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 5. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Genereset and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. Now, it's interesting. I'm just going to pause right there. Um, there N.T. Wright, uh, he's a, a good New Testament uh, teacher and commentator, and he, he talks about on a trip that he took to the Sea of Galilee that he got into a little boat, and the way these eddies are that kind of come off the sea, these little streams, you can kind of pull up in there, and there's large hillsides, and that you can actually speak in a little boat there, and it, and it just magnifies like an amphitheater up the hillside. You know, the Lord certainly could have given Jesus a booming voice, but I would imagine from all accounts, he just spoke with authority, not because he was loud, but because he spoke the truth of God's word. It is so interesting when we hear this passage, we see that the multitude were pressing to hear the word of God. And this is the first place where we see fishermen show up in this gospel. Now this is going to become really important to us it's important to recognize that in the Old Testament, there is not a single mention of fishermen. None of the prophets are fishermen. None of the teachers, none of the kings were fishermen. They were farmers. They were shepherds. They were many other things, but they were not fishermen. And this is going to become important as we move along. 
Now it's interesting because we look at this passage and we need to remember something. Jesus is a carpenter. He's well known because remember in the last passage, our last reading last week, the people in Galilee were saying in Nazareth, oh, we know this guy, right? They knew he was a, a carpenter. One thing he was not, he was not a fisherman. I don't know if he ever as a boy or a young man went down to the lake to do some fishing for fun, but he was not a fisherman. So Jesus, I want you to think about this, the carpenter, not a fisherman, goes on and says this in verse 4. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But, Jesus, but Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Can you imagine? Okay, just for a second now. They, Simon's been around him a little bit. He obviously, you know, Peter, Jesus has been to Peter's house. Um, and, and maybe, perhaps, Peter was there when Jesus cast out the demon. And he knows that Jesus has healed some people. But this is before all the great miracles are going on. Right? They haven't fed the 5,000 yet. With fish, by the way. And bread. You know, Jesus hasn't raised anyone from the dead. And this carpenter, in the middle of the day, and, and by the way, they would fish at night. That's when the fish were available for catching. Okay? This carpenter was saying, go out in the deep water and cast out your nets in the middle of broad daylight. And Peter, recognizing that Jesus was at least a teacher of God's word at this point, says, Master or teacher, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. He's, he's stating the obvious. You know, we went out, you know, we're the fishermen. <laughs> we were there all night. And we catch the thing. And Peter says, Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. Now, this is real important. When we come to the end of the, today's sermon, I'm going to tie this together. So they, they're obedient to Christ, and they're pulling up their nets. And obviously, these men, they, they cared about their nets, because what were they doing at the beginning of this story? They were washing their nets, which means, who washes their nets? Guys that really care about the net being strong to catch the fish. This was their livelihood. And so the fact that their nets couldn't withstand the weight of these fish is significant. These weren't the Saturday morning or weekend warrior fishermen. These were pros. They cared for their nets, and yet because they were obedient to Christ, these nets were overflowingly full. And it says, and when they had done this, they had caught a great number of fish. Their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came, and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. Again, this, this is an actual event that happened. But I would also tell you there's some symbolism going on here. In the beginning, they are fishermen. They are doing what they can. And yet... They're overwhelmed. Their nets are breaking. Their ships are sinking. 
through the miracle and work of Christ. And you think about that for a second. Wait a minute. I'm getting a blessing from God and my nets are breaking and my ships are sinking. How does this even make any sense? And look at what happens here. What does Peter do? I think this is really important. He says this, When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I think this is really interesting. I, I don't know. I've heard this story many, many times. If you grow up, grew up going to Sunday school, you heard this story. A sinful man. Why, why is it that when the Lord brings this immense blessing, right, that Peter's response is, Get away from me. I, I, I can't be in your presence. Clearly, I am a sinner and you are not. We so often forget the holiness of God. We forget the awesome nature of God. We live in a day and age where the love of Jesus is preached, and this is really important, but often to the point of forgetting the holiness of God, and we approach God with a casual attitude. We forget, this is important now, we forget that we are truly undone in our sins outside of Christ. This is really important. People of God today in our lectionary reading from Psalms, Psalm 138 said this, in verse 6, though the Lord is on high, he is holy, he is great, he is on high, yet he regards the lowly. But the proud he knows from afar. People of God recognize, as Peter did, that God is holy, that Jesus did a mighty work. Be humble. Be humble. Don't come to the Lord casually. In Isaiah 6, it says this, in verse 5, so I said, woe is me, for I am undone. That was our, our other reading today, was it not? Woe to me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. That's what happened right there with Peter. He saw the king, the Lord of hosts. We need to recognize that God... Is holy. I don't think that we think about the fear of the Lord enough. As a matter of fact, I've, I know I've mentioned it from time to time, but I want us to take a minute this morning and think about the holiness of God and that without Christ, we are truly undone. When God comes on the scene, we see over and over in the Scripture the fear that occurs. Even when angels show up, the helpers of God, the people are afraid. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, But while he thought about these things, that is Joseph, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. And what does the angel say? Do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, verse 5 says, But the angel answered and said to the women, This is at the resurrection. So we're talking both at the beginning of Jesus' life and at the end of 
Jesus' life, what does the angel have to say? Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. In the beginning of Luke, when the angel is dealing with Zacharias, the angel says to Zacharias, Do not be afraid. We see again when the angels show up to the shepherds in Luke 2, Do not be afraid. And we see in Revelation chapter 1, the last book of the Bible, that when John comes before Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, he said, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. If you're not convinced that our God is holy and righteous and that we are undone in our sins outside of Christ, let us consider Exodus 20. The people of God, when God shows up to speak to them in Exodus 20, to give the commandments and to give them instruction on how to live, it says this, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. In Job 28, it says this, And to the man, that is, he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Psalm 19 says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Psalm 34 tells us this, Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Psalm 111 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instructions. Proverbs 1.29 says, Because they have hated knowledge... And did not choose the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 2.5 says, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. We live in a time and an age where everyone is pursuing knowledge and trying to get, grasp at things. And yet there is no fear of God. We see in Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. People of God, praise be to God that even though we, if we come to the understanding of who we are as sinners, that we are completely undone, there is forgiveness. Colossians 3.13 tells us this, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Again, let us remember this morning's reading from Psalm 138. Though the Lord is on a high, yet He regards the lowly.
We as Christians should fear our holy God, being humbly thankful for his grace in Christ is higher than his justice to us. I just want us to think about that for a moment. If we're humble, if we confess our sins, if we turn and repent, forgiveness is available. Now as we turn back to Luke chapter 5, looking at verse 9, we see this. So this is after Peter says, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinner. God revealed who Jesus was to him right there. And he recognized that he's undone. It says this in verse 9, For he, that is Peter, and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. People of God, in Christ Jesus, we do not have to be afraid of God's judgment because we have confessed our sins and we are trusting in the holiness of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Jesus brings peace. John 14, 27 says this, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives you do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John 16, 33 says this, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we can be in a place of fear, but through the work of Christ, peace is available to us, and not the peace that the world clamors for, that's temporary at best because they are scheming for peace. They are not trusting in the Prince of Peace. Finally, we see in this passage from Luke, it says this, Jesus says, From now on you will catch men. That is, you will be fishers of men. This is significant. This is the calling of the disciples. This is their mission. To be fishers of men. To be catchers of men. Why? Because in God's word, the sea represents the world and the Gentiles. The fish are the Gentiles. Jesus, right there at the very beginning, is making the point that his disciples are going to establish the kingdom of heaven. And it not only includes those whom they have expected all their life to be part of the family of God, but the entire sea and all the fish that is in it. In verse 11, it says, So when they had brought their boat to land, they forsook all and followed him. Now this is really significant. As Christians, we need to recognize that our calling is to reach and disciple the nations. But we need to be like Peter and like John and like James and the others that were with them. And it says they forsook all. Now, I think a lot of times when we look at this, we say, oh, he was calling them away from being fishermen every day. 
Not so. We see at other points that Peter and those fellows are out there fishing later on. Now there are times they're away from home and the Lord is providing for their needs. But it is more than that. To forsake all is to forsake idols. That is to depart and leave behind those priorities that they were living their life by. And you know what? We know Peter was at least marginally trying to follow God. Why? Because he was in the synagogue when Jesus was there, and then they went across to his, to his mother-in-law's house. You know, we need to make sure that we guard ourselves from letting other things become the priority other than God's priorities in our lives. Idols that we allow to grow up in our lives. Judges 10.6 says this, Then the children of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherahs, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. Two things here. One, that, that, verse, that set of verses there starts with, Then the children of God again. So that means that at one point they were doing right, and then they again went back and did evil. And what did they do? They got themselves worshiping and prioritizing things based off of all the other pagans around them. People of God, guard yourself from the priorities that the world says are the most important things. Don't pick up the gods, the Baals, the Asherahs, the gods of Syria and Sidon, the gods of Ammon and the Philistines. No, don't forsake the priorities of God. Matthew 26, 56 says this, But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. This is at the cross. And what happens? It says, And then the disciples forsook him, that is Jesus, and fled. It's important that when we look at this word to forsake or to they forsook, they fled. They didn't have understanding. People of God, we look to God's word for understanding. You may even say, Pastor Dan, you're always all these Bible verses, Bible verses. We want God's word to be that which brings clarity to our lives. When they fled, they were looking for Christ. They didn't understand everything that was happening. They needed to be renewed. They needed their lives reordered. The first step in renewing and reordering our lives is worshiping God according to His Word. How many guys have heard of the book, The Benedict Option? Anyone? A handful of people out there. It's about resetting the world in a particular fashion trying to be more monastic, following Benedict. And here, we need to think of ourselves following the Haggai option. We're going to quickly look at a couple of things here in terms of reordering our lives according to God's Word. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 Beginning at verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, 
Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, It is time for yourselves to dwell in your planted, excuse me, is it time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, and this temple lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it in a bag full of holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That's the second time that he says that. That's important. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that it is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land, and the mountains on the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, and whatever the grounds bring forth on men and livestock, and on all the labors of your hands. Now here in Haggai there's something going on. God is cursing the people of Israel. They are tending to their own houses. I'd say they've fallen back into the, the way of the people and judges. And every man did what was right in his own house, in his own eyes. There's something really important we have to recognize, and that is this. That without a temple, the people of Israel could not worship properly. How did, how did they go to God in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, and deal with the sins of the people? The Day of Atonement. What do you need to do the Day of Atonement? The Ark of the Covenant? The Temple? The priests? The sacrifices? How are you going to resolve the sin in your life if you couldn't do sin sacrifices? How could you worship God by bringing the first fruits if the Temple was not being used. Everyone went and tended to their own priorities. None of their priorities were wrong. In fact, they were good priorities. Is it good to take care of your house? Yes. Is it good to take care of your family? Yes. Is it good to be diligent in your work? Yes. But if those things shift and become idols, and you neglect the things of God, worshiping God and following His Word, all of those efforts come to naught. But when things are out of order in our lives, when we make other things our idols, it is grasping at things that don't belong to you. You see, we want to be God so we grasp at things and we make our own priorities and we worship God in our own way. We're out of order. We need to be reoriented. 
we must understand that worshiping together is the place where we start. If you want God's blessing, we must worship God and we must do it. It begins here on Sunday and then it goes out throughout the week. We cannot be successful in all our other endeavors without being reoriented and refashioned by God in worship. The individual, the family, and the people of God, and even our greater culture will not be transformed and reformed without starting with worship as God prescribes. We must ask God to reveal to us through His Word our idols. Is it work, family, the way I do things, lusts, power and position? By the way, that power and position, those seeking that, oftentimes it's that which provides us an excuse to be full of anger and wrath towards our wives, our children, to those we work with, and even our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now this is real important. At that point, God was saying, you need to restore this building so you can do these things I've asked you to do. Today, the temple is not brick and mortar, but rather it is His people. Even your own children sitting here today, when we do the Lord's table, these are not simply your children. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ sitting with you, which is why you tarry and wrestle with them all service long. In 1 Peter chapter 4, it says this, or excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. When we have idols, we need to repent and set our affections on Christ. This is really important because you cannot take the idol you've been worshiping and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to repent of that and not turn and take that passion, that energy, that those things you were doing, those affections, you have to place it somewhere else. And that should be on Christ. That, that, that passage in Peter right there tells us that not only are we the living stones, but that it is Christ who is the cornerstone here in this church and in his greater church. We need to make sure that we are setting our affections on Christ. Now this is really important. I want to say this to you. Husbands, wives, this is an easy illustration for you. If you said that you love your spouse, you love your wife, you love your husband, but all week long you don't talk to them and they're there, and you don't make efforts to be with them and they're there, I would say we need to have a talk about your affections. This service here today is the beginning of our week. It's going to be for the going out. It's reordering us and reorienting us into godly things. When we go out, let us 
be mindful of what our idols are and repenting and turning to God and putting our affections on Christ Jesus. Finally, what is our purpose? Because that's just it. If, if our priorities are over here and our idols are over here and we, we want to say, well, what should my affections be? It should be on Christ. What action should I take? Read God's word, pray, fellowship among the saints, and make disciples of whom? Your husbands, your wives, your children, your brothers and sisters in this church, and yes, everyone outside these doors. We're going to look at this real quick. This is the close right here. In John 21, this is, this is kind of tying this together. We see the call of the disciples of Peter, James, and John. They're going to be fishers of men. And remember, what, what were those key points? They were overwhelmed. They were undone. Their nets were breaking. Their ship was sinking from the work of God. In their own strength, in their own ways, they were not able to even pull in this fish. It was destroying them in their own strength and their own works. John 21, beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again. This is after the resurrection. To the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's Galilee. And in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. There he is, can't get that fishing out. And they said to him, we're going with you also. And they went out immediately and got in the boat. And that night, what happened? We're back. To, remember, this is what just happened in our passage in Luke. It says, that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood at the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, do you have any food? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Does this sound, you see this imagery, this parallel imagery from their call? This is right before he's ascending. He's reorienting them to think about their calling. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. And therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. And the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 200 cubits, dragging the net with the fish. So the net's not breaking yet. Then, as soon as they had come to land, they saw the fire of coals there and fish laid on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. And check this out. Now before, remember, boats sinking, nets breaking. They can't heave it in. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. And Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. 
Yet none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? And I'm going to finish this passage in just a second here, but I've got to pause and say this. All right, remember, boat sinking, nets breaking, can't haul it in. And it says that Simon Peter went up, and what did he do? He drugged this net to the land full of large fish. Now, if you look at the fish that are in the Sea of Galilee, the, the most common fish, pretty small, you know, four pounds perhaps at its biggest size. The larger fish is the type of carp. Now, I'm not much of a fisherman, so I had to do research. These are good-sized fish. They weigh between 12 and 13 pounds. So that's about 2,000 pounds of fish. Now, granted, the fish kind of float. There's all that. But he drags it all the way up. The net doesn't break. Because of, of the Lord speaking to him, he has the strength to complete the task. More importantly, there's something going on here with this 153 large fish. We're going to come to that in one second. Because Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. He took the bread, he gave it to them, and the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples and after, after he was raised from the dead. I mentioned this earlier. None of the priests, prophets, or kings of the Old Testament were fishermen. They were all farmers and, or animal husbandmen. By the way of contrast, none of Jesus' disciples was either a farmer or a husbandman. The most prominent of the disciples were fishermen. <clears throat> Nobody is shown eating fish in the Old Testament, but Jesus feeds the 5,000 with his fish. And as one theologian said, it wasn't beef jerky. After his resurrection, Jesus eats fish, not a piece of lamb. The disciples are almost never spoken of as shepherds. You see it in a few places, but they are clearly fishers of men. This shift of imagery indicates Jesus' new kingdom is going to go to the whole world, to the Gentiles. Now, here in John 21, Peter catches 153 large fish. By the way, again, the, the scriptures teach us and show us that the Gentiles are the fish. We see this all over the place. But this is important. These large fish speak of the nations of the world who are going to be caught in the net as these men are obedient to preaching God's word. The net is the kingdom of God focused in the church. The net doesn't break despite the large number of big fish. The church will not be destroyed by the nations she converts, but will hold them and bring them to Jesus as Peter does. As the net draws the fish, so Jesus draws all men to himself. Now, I'm not going to explain all the math here, but I'm going to throw a few things out because I'm not the mathematician in the room. Okay, but this 153 fish, this is the New Covenant's table of nations. We see very, in the beginning in Genesis, 
we see the 70 nations, right? Seven times 10. And anybody familiar with triangular numbers? I've got a paper right here if anybody wants to read about it later. But essentially, there's, there's math going on here. 7 and 10 are both complete numbers. Every time you see that number show up in the scriptures, it's about completeness. And the triangular number of 53 is 17, 153 is 17. And this is imagery, these thoughts, these ideas are helping us to see that all the fish in the sea, that, the, that all the nations will be discipled, that the church will not fail in this. It might not be like how we thought it would be. It might not be with the USA, but it is going to be the church, God's people around the world, discipling all of the nations. This week, let us submit ourselves to God's word and worship. Let us make disciples of the nations, beginning at home and in the body and to the very ends of the earth. Let us pray. O righteous and holy God, forgive us, your people, for our idolatry in so many areas that we have foolishly made greater than you. Thank you for your mercy that is found in Christ alone. Please prepare us now to come to your table of fellowship through the work of your Son, Jesus. Amen.